Harcourt Valley Vineyards is now bringing their award-winning wines, ginger beer and raspberry mead to your door, offering free delivery in central Victoria and Melbourne. Their lockdown wine box special includes a combination of Riesling, Grenache Rosé, Barb Shiraz, Cab Sav and Mount Camel Shiraz. Check out their Facebook page or Instagram for details or visit harcourtvalley.com.au. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is a full-bodied sponsor of Main FM. Knocked on your door. The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. All aboard. Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to another edition of The Quiet Carriage. We're back after Radiothon, and I just want to say a massive thank you to all of our subscribers, over 600 of you, in fact. We broke last year's record, shattered it, in fact. It was a huge success, and it means that we can broadcast for yet another year. So thank you for that. And another thank you to subscribers to this show. We had a Kirsten Crowth special on last week, and both Kirsten and her publisher, Transit Lounge, very kindly gave us five signed copies of her book, Almost a Mirror, to give away. The winners for that were Jenny Valentish, Maria Alessandrino, Scott Wilson, and Scott Ashby. And I said I'd give another one away this week. And I'm going to give that away to Tom and Heidi from the Main Movers, who subscribed a business subscription there. So a a massive thank you to to those five. Congratulations as well. And once again, thank you to everyone who, uh, who subscribed to Keep Us On Air. And it's not too late. You can still subscribe up until the end of July and be in the running for the main prizes. That's around $10,000 of prizes. Just visit mainfm.net and follow the links to subscribe. Let's get on to this week's episode, shall we? Uh, Later on in the show, I'll be reading another short story from the collection Thrill Me. You might remember I read one uh, last month. It's out now via Glimmer Press, and I'm going to be reading the short story Lights and Sirens, written by Rachel Mead. First up, I'm going to chat to a debut author, Ronnie Scott, about his new novel, The Adversary. Now, let's just hear a little bit of the blurb from the novel, which is out now via Penguin. It's been a long winter in a creaky house in Brunswick where a young man has devoted himself to recreational showers, staring at his phone and speculating on the activities of his best friend and housemate, Dan. But now summer is coming, and Dan has found a new boyfriend and a job, so the young man is being pushed out into the world in search of friendship and love. The Adversary is a sticky summer novel about young people exploring their sexuality and their sociability, where everything smells like sunscreen and tastes like beer, but affections and alliances have consequences. It asks what kind of stories are possible or desirable, for which kind of friendships, and what happens when you follow those stories to their natural conclusions. And that's the blurb from The Adversary. 
and a little bit about the author, Ronnie Scott. Ronnie Scott writes essays and criticism for newspapers, websites, and magazines. In 2007, he founded The Lifted Brow, an independent literary magazine. He's a lecturer in the writing and publishing discipline at RMIT University, and The Adversary is his first novel. And I'm going to chat to Ronnie Scott right now. Author Ronnie Scott, congratulations on your novel, your debut novel, The Adversary. It's a wonderful achievement. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for talking to us today on The Quiet Carriage. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's great to be here. <laughs> That's great. It's sort of like, it's not It's not really a, a love triangle. It's more sort of a, a love square, really, <laughs> with the protagonist at the center. Does the protagonist have a name? I was just thinking of it then. No, he does not have a name, yes. which makes it difficult to talk about in radio interviews. <laughs> actually, <laughs> but, um, but no, he doesn't have a name. I actually didn't work that out. I didn't actually realize that to the end of the novel. So yeah, it's about him. He's sort of in the center and there's four other people around. Where where did this story originate from? Yeah, right. I um, so, so the story kind of right at the center of mm-hmm. the story. It's interesting to hear it called a triangle or a square because I think that that's, that makes a lot of sense. But, yeah, um, yeah. But, but I was really interested in this best friendship between the protagonist and Dan, who is the, the sort of other main character in the book. And yes. he's a guy that the narrator lives with. Yes. Um, they have a very kind of intense and exhausting, but but I think also kind of fun and silly relationship with each other. Um, mm-hmm. And they, um, they just need their friendship to change. It's just a, a friendship that has kind of reached a point where it has to be able to grow or sit somewhere a bit differently in their lives or, or somewhere else. Um, if they're, if, if it's going to survive basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, when you say these kind of, these, these elements of a triangle or a square, I think that part of it is them trying to understand their, their friendship. Mm. Um, they sort of go out into the world and they meet other people that become these slightly different ways for them to look at themselves and each other. And, wh- and when you ask where did the idea for the story come from, mm-hmm. I really wanted to investigate this idea of, of really close friendships between gay men because I've been around friendships like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like them. I've but I've never been in one. I, ha- I have a very sort of different way of relating to um, to friends and to and to men. And I just was really interested to think, well, how how do those kinds of friendships work, and how could I how could I put one at the center of a novel? Mm-hmm. How long did it take to to write the novel? Well, <laughs> they. Um, <laughs> It shouldn't have taken as long as it did because it's very short. Like you can read mm. it in a day, and I think that's sort of what it's designed for. But yes. it took me six or seven years, wow. I, I guess, because I was doing other things at the same time. But I also just had to figure out how to write a book. Yeah, right. I know. I saw that you were one of the fi- oh, the founder of the Lifted Brow, which is a very respected uh, Melbourne lit mag um, online as well. So, and I know you, you founded that in 2007 and presumably you've been writing seriously before 2007. So I was just wondering why wait till, um, 2020 to publish your first novel? I mean, have there, <laughs> has there been a few false starts or abandoned projects or? Yeah, there were, there were so many abandoned projects. Um, I think like, yeah, I, I mean, thinking about, I, I think sometimes about, about waste and about the fact that, that, writing is kind of a labor intensive way to spend mm-hmm. your time. And sometimes it just feels like a sinkhole. Like at the moment I'm working on another novel and, uh, and, and I've been working on it for a couple of years while finishing the adversary as well. And, uh, and there's just so much like wasted 
wasted wasted text but but i think hmm. that that's just the way that that it kind of works i think that you sort of do just have to give yourself lots of opportunities to figure out what the story is really about and then you walk away for a while and mm. ask yourself some questions about it and, and so there was a lot of that with the adversary and b- before that as well i was um like I, I even though i was always kind of broadly a writer editor um there are lots of different kind of pursuits that you can follow within those fields like yes. i was writing journalism and nonfiction and doing freelance editing and ghostwriting and academia which i'm still doing mm-hmm. that kind of thing and that that sort of fills up your days pretty quick yeah yeah of course yeah it's a very melbourne story you know set in brunswick with a with a bit of a sprinkling of richmond as well and i i particularly loved your depiction of brunswick i lived in Nicholson Street for about five or six years so yeah I, I know it very well and talking about the retreat hotel savers the the 19 tram <laughs> all that uh, I haven't actually been there in a few years but it really did yeah. take me back and it also reminded me of, of one of my favorite novels I'm sure you would know this as well Death in Brunswick which... I do love Death in Brunswick yes it... uh, and I actually so I, I wasn't um, I wasn't living in Brunswick when I was writing most of this book i was living in brunswick when i was writing some of it Mm -hmm. but i but i remember reading death in brunswick as well as loaded by christos jolkas while i lived in brunswick itself and those were both kind of yeah really incredible experiences just to see like a different version of the place where you live um kind of reflected back at you yeah and uh yeah i i really wanted to be specific about place so i'm glad that you liked it as someone who lived on nicholson street that's very cool where whereabouts on nicholson street well actually uh, i'm lying here it wasn't brunswick it was actually coburg i could never afford to live in brunswick we were up sort of the top end near uh bell street yeah oh uh, cool okay but same I, thing that's brunswick i don't know spent a lot of time a lot of time in brunswick yeah also um i interviewed uh catherine de saint fall recently she oh, yeah. released her book the cnr's uh, via Transit Lounge last year, and that's yep. all about Brunswick as well. That was set on Ligon Street, and just wondering, like, what what is so inspiring about that place that you know so many books come out of it? I think that's such a good question because I because um, so I used to go as, as well to real red red wheelbarrow um, books yes. um, where the, the author you just mentioned worked, and uh, and I know that one of her first that's books right. was called On Brunswick Ground as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's been a yeah, and I think that. That there's going to be scenes in my next book set in Brunswick as well. I don't, I don't know what um, makes it so inspiring. I think mm. that it's well, it made sense for my story because I wanted a place where you could reasonably be a um, a student, like the main character is, over a summer and being able to um, being able to kind of just sit inside your bedroom and go out of your skull like he does without having to work. Uh, and I think that that's still possible in Brunswick, although less and less possible. Um, so there was a practical reason for it. I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but, yeah. but the reason it's inspiring, I think, and the reason I love, like I really, really love going to Brunswick and I would love to end up back there one day, is that it feels like a, it doesn't feel like a suburb, but it doesn't feel like a um, whatever the, the kind of smaller version of a suburb is. It, it feels like its mm. own little zone of... Yeah. Um, of of people and meaning and uh, and kind of you know I hate the word multicultural but it is multicultural. Mm. Um, I like that um, that it's big enough that you could live in Brunswick for you know a good five or six years like I did mm-hmm. as well, and and still have areas that you have never walked to yeah. or um, or been down even if you are a walker like I am. Yeah. And 
and yeah, there's there's it's just big enough that it can still retain some some sense of um, yeah, I guess mystery as well. Yeah, yeah. I also liked your depiction of Melbourne's sort of infamous north-south divide. You know, Brunswick in the north, Richmond in the south of the river. With sort of the escalation of gentrification over the last few years, do you think that's such a such a big thing? That's a great question because I think that it's true that um, that more and more there's like the the divides between the between people. I'm just thinking out loud, but the mm. divides between 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 the ways in which people live are so different from the, this kind of very, in some ways, like very specious, um, mm. like divide between whether you're a north side of the river person or a south side of the river person. It's much more about um, about whether you own land or whether you rent very precariously. Um, I guess mm. it's always been like that. And I wonder as well if, um, if some of the reason that stories like the north-south divide are so appealing to us um, it's a way of it's a way of talking about difference, or it's a way of of talking about the fact that there are differences in the ways that people live and the ways that people see the world. Mm. It's kind of a, a fun sort of surface level way to play with that, um, and I think that sometimes those sort of superficial discussions aren't always as, as superficial as they first feel or seem. Yes, yeah, yeah. You lecture in the writing program at RMIT. And yes. um, you founded Lifted Brow, as we said, in tw- uh, 2007. How have these, or how do these associations influence you as a writer? Oh, okay. Um, I guess talking about RMIT, I think mm. that, and I was thinking about this really recently, um, I think just, and, and the same goes for editing and publishing, I guess. Um, being around other people's writing is really important mm-hmm. as a writer, I think. Like, the thing that I always say in the classroom is that you like from a writing workshop and not all creative writing workshop classes sort of have this workshop model that we inherited from american universities but but ours does where you know people sit around the room and they talk about people's drafts and they give feedback on on people's drafts yes. and you do that for you know you you get 20 people's feedback on your draft and you give feedback on 19 people's drafts over the course of a semester um and it builds a cohort of writers, but also you you have this kind of very difficult but really important job mm-hmm. of sorting people's feedback on your work. Like, no, you know, that room of 20 people is not all going to be correct about what what you should be doing with your work. Mm-hmm. And part of the fun is figuring out the way that you the way that you should should kind of assign different weights and meanings to different people's kinds of feedback. But but mm-hmm. I think that the key benefit, honestly, is that you get to give feedback on 19 people's um pieces and so you're forced to think oh okay what's working and what what is this writer really trying to say and what's the thing that's stopping them from saying the thing they're really trying to say and how can i um work within the structure and vocabulary of their story to try to find a a solution that's right for what they're doing and the kind of writer that they are and i think just doing having to think critically about other people's work it just gives you more options for your own Mm. so i would like i would really recommend that anyone who wants to get into writing um studies creative writing but Mm -hmm. also does things like like volunteers at um at literary magazines and or, or works as a um editor or publisher on the web or in in um, book publishing for yes. sure I think that yeah you just any anything that helps you see see text as as something that, that can be changed and can mm-hmm. be um, can be worked with is always going to be good for your own work mm. I find that with this show as well because I'm reading mm. nearly a, a book a week 
uh, right. that's coming out. And yeah, just thinking critically and getting to talk to the authors, I'm, I'm finding it, yeah, a huge benefit. Are you? Yeah, cool. Yeah, go on. <clears throat> and I guess other people must just have really different ideas about the way that they, the way they work, right? So, yes. I, so people, everyone has a different approach to craft, which is one of the interesting things about writing. Yeah, yeah which is one of the great things. I mean, if everyone was, you know, getting up at five a.m. and writing for those two hours, you know, every novel would probably be sounding pretty much the same. So, it's, <laughs> it's really, I'm really right. interested in, in hearing about writers' processes. Yeah.
That was Nadia Reed there with her track, Richard. And now I'll return to my interview with the author, Ronnie Scott. How important are literary mags such as, you know, Lifted Bro, KYD, Overland and a few others to, uh, to young writers who are really trying to establish themselves and establish their voice? Yeah, no, they are really important. I think um, why I, I think that one of the reasons is that that in a in a magazine format, which I guess is is like there's this constant question about a magazine format and what it means in the age of the web. And we've been talking about this question for years and years and years. And I guess we'll keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. But there's something about about seeing different pieces of work together that I think makes you consider things like style. Um, that makes you consider different, th- you know, things like people's approaches to um, to themes and topics, and just to the project of writing in general. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, like, when I the last time I, um, I'm trying to think, the last time I looked at a magazine, which was in the last week, it, it was actually one that was um, that was lent to me. Someone lent me the Lucky Peach, that that food magazine, which I think is no longer around, but right. they're apoc- apocalypse issue um, because it's kind of topical in the age of COVID, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> yeah. and. I, and there are just things that I would never have read if I'd been looking at a, at the website, I guess. Um, yes. I think that having something in your hand in front of you, it allows you to, I don't know, to just kind of wander down the page and to, um, to pick out a random paragraph and to sort of half read a piece. And that's something that's probably really horrifying to writers. We all like to be read attentively, mm. but I think that it's kind of important to, um, to have the chance to encounter other styles in sort of a lazy, leisurely way. And I think that that's one of the roles of magazines. And, if, and then there's like the obvious stuff, like it just gives people a chance to, to be edited. It gives people a chance to to, to try out ideas at shorter lengths. And I think that it allows people to find readerships and mm-hmm. to see the, the different ways that their work can be interpreted. Yes. Um, yeah. Like, like I always tell people as well, especially, you know, under 25 to submit to voice works because, or, and the, the actual remit of voice works is to publish great work. Yes. But also to, um, to give, to, to develop writers and to mm-hmm. give feedback on work. Uh, and I remember, like my first publication was in VoiceWorks when I was still at uni um, in the 2000s, but also um, some of my first rejections came from VoiceWorks, mm-hmm. and it was just so cool to get like a paragraph of considered feedback about something that that a magazine was rejecting. Yes. And most literary journals can't do that, but I think that yeah, getting to interact with an editor is just really important to writers. Yes, of course, yeah. And what does your writing process or writing schedule look like? Do you have do you have one set in place? Yeah, uh, I, I have an ideal one. Like you know how you said before that if everyone got up at five a.m. and did the two hours, like all of our books would look the same. Yes, <laughs> I that's that's like my dream, and oh. that's what I like when it's going really well that's what i do is i wake up pretty early and before i do anything else like look at my emails and phone and stuff i do two hours and i do that with my coffee and that that just gives you the feeling that everything Mm -hmm. is being kind of nudged forward all Mm -hmm. the time um and it's so good when you're in a rhythm like that but i think that realistically life gets in the way all the time and you're always kind of fighting for that ideal ideal working process Mm -hmm. but i like I, I wish that I was one of those writers, and I know writers who can who can do this, where you can just like steal half an hour in the middle of the afternoon, and and especially like parents I know because I'm not a parent, but parents are quite good at finding yeah. at working with the time that they have, and I think that's an incredible kind of thing to to be able to to do as a writer. Um, 
but yeah, I kind of need to do it before um before i start thinking about other things yes right right you have some mighty fine quotes attached to your book i'd like to read some if i could um christos chalkas said uh terrific sad and elegant and also bloody moving um and then benjamin law who was the writer and creator of the tv series the the family law said ronnie scott captures the ironic candence casual obsessions and gay neuroses of a generation and delivers something wryly funny, very endearing, and in the best possible way, too real. Um, and there's also quotes by Emily Bitto, Amy Bloom, Brian Washington. I mean, that, that's fantastic. How gratifying is that for you to see that on your novel? It's nice. I mean, I, I think that um, that you, you can't take it too seriously because it's like it, a lot of it is, is about kind of getting the book in the hands of the right readers. Yes. Um, like it's a you know it's a marketing decision in so many ways but at the same time you know that when people are writing things like that um like they'll find a way not to do it if it's if they don't um in some way feel <laughs> the thing that they're that they're writing and uh and it's just it's nice to have um yeah to have other people in your field who are willing to mm. say such like kind things about you for sure yeah and i i'm such a fan of all of those writers i think like i mentioned loaded already um but that was a big deal to me when i lived in brunswick um and then ben law i think is just yeah. a model of a writer who works across so many different forms in such uh always eloquent always really smart way and then the strays by emily bitto yeah. is just a like a gorgeous and extremely like interesting historical um take on um on being an artist in melbourne as well yeah yeah i'm sure we could probably talk about it all day but could you tell us a little bit about your journey to getting this published yeah it, uh yes so it was it was i think it was driven by temperament more than anything else in that right. i tried to get it published way before it was ready um so I um, I sent it out to um, to, to agents um, yes. before, like probably when it was still really like pretty slack. I think um, to be honest, and I and in part that's because I was at a stage where I just needed some external like impetus to mm -hmm. um, to yeah I needed to feel like it had some sort of life in the world because I'd been working on it by myself for probably five years by that point. Um, I needed probably some some feedback on what to do with it next, and and I ended up getting an agent who was like very editorial, and that was exactly what I needed. Right. So I did a, like a few rounds of edits with her actually before we were ready to send it out. Um, and I think that I learned a lot in that process, and I think that um, that I was really lucky to find an agent who was able to um, to do that and willing to do that because mm -hmm. a lot of them probably aren't. And then um, we. Uh, we ended up with actually we ended up with Penguin because the editor at Penguin had already published a Penguin special of mine years right. ago. Um, so we so we had a pre-existing relationship, and I think that actually, um, to be honest, it still had a long way to go. Um, I still had to do like a good few rounds of, of structural edits, and we pushed back the release date a couple times. Um, so there was. Yeah, there was a lot of kind of work that I saw that in some ways I wish I'd kind of done by myself. Mm -hmm. But at the because it's in you know variously challenging and interesting and makes you feel very vulnerable to kind of go through that with um, with other professionals, I guess. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think it's probably good for you to 
let your writing out into the world and to um and to let it be improved by other people and to you know be able to show that kind of vulnerable drafting side of yourself Mm -hmm. to people that you work with it makes you feel less precious about it Mm. but but yeah I, i think that there were various stages where it was like influenced by um by great people um and i was also really lucky to have um to have a a very good copy editor um who took it through the last stages of it and was just so like fine fine tuned um fine fine finely attuned i guess to to things like meaning and things like what needed to be there and what didn't and what kinds of jokes were landing and what weren't um as well as um just things that spoke to the themes of the book um so i so yeah i i felt lucky to have attentive editors at every stage and i know that not everyone um walks out of a book experience saying that mm-hmm. that's wonderful yeah the book was released in april i can't think of a more unlucky time to release a book <laughs> since probably world war Two. Has has it been such a huge setback, or or have things actually come out okay in the wash? Well, I mean, it's only been a couple of weeks actually since it <laughs> since it came out, and I think mm. that like I was I was freaking out before the publication date, which was fifteenth of April, and mm. first like. I was trying to convince the publisher to push back the release date. Yeah. Um, and they said no for really good reasons. Like, like there's going to be a big slew of books coming out in October. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there would be, there would be anyway because of Christmas titles. And so there's, you know, this calculation that you have to do, like, is it better to put it out when people might be able to walk into a bookstore or go to a book event in person or like none of us know what the world will look like then mm-hmm. um, in October 2020. And also like every, a lot of people are going to have the same idea. So there's that calculation. And then like, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before the actual release date, I was desperately trying to get them to move forward the release date because I thought that we were going to go into this intense later style of lockdown, like some other countries have had where bookstores would not be able to even deliver. Mm. Like, you know, in yeah. I think in New Zealand, that's not possible. So people had to, um, people who had books out there in April had to rely on e-publishing and audiobooks, and that happened in a lot of countries. So I thought, well, let's try to get it out before yeah. that happens. But of course, there's machinery in place, and that can't happen. And mm. um, and also, they were kind of taking the gamble that it's best to stick to the stick to the release date, and uh, you know, and and sort of give some reliability and steadiness to the way that people intersect with books as well. So uh, it, it turned out okay. Like I, I think. No one's given me a sales figure yet, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't know the context of it or what it means, even yes. if they did. Like, I don't know what the projected and mm-hmm. what the expectations were. I know that there was a big spike in fiction sales at the start of April, and then by the time my book came out, there was a big dip. Right. Um, and maybe now it's leveled off or it's dipped further. I'm not sure. But but it's so, like, it's such a huge out-of-our-hands thing yeah, as, a, as an author. Like, yeah. just like the entire world at the moment is just making so clear to all of us in different ways, like that these forces are in some ways out of our hands, mm. that it's kind of not worth worrying about, I guess. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's been fun. Like, I think that, that even though you can do f- fewer events and you don't have in-person interaction with people, you, uh, there's been a, there's been a lot of effort, I think, from from media and from um from publishers and from readers of um readers of books uh to to make up for that in some way so you get to do lots of lots of interesting interviews and listicles and online webinars and that kind of stuff so it's just a different world i guess 
Mm, yeah, it's forced everyone to be a, a lot more innovative, hasn't it? And uh, there's a <laughs> lot of exciting things going on out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ronnie Scott, thank you so much for talking with us today on The Quiet Carriage. Your book is The Adversary. It is out now via Penguin. Best of luck with it. Could you leave us with a song? Yeah, I can. Um, by the way, thanks for those great questions. That was really fun. Oh, um, thank you. The, the song that I'll leave you with is called Total Control um, by The Motels. And uh, it's kind of a new wave song. Um, it's from the 80s. Actually, I think it was on an album in the 70s. But um, but it. Uh, I'm just Googling this. <laughs> um, but it... Oh, no, when is it? It doesn't matter. Um, it, it came out at a certain period in history, and it's a great song. Uh, and it's, I like it for this book because it is a sort of a sort of summary, sticky, obsessive song. Right. Uh, and it makes me think of the way that the narrator thinks about his friend Dan. Yeah, right. Thanks, Ronnie. Here's your song.
Lifehouse are designers of simple, serene buildings. We craft spaces and forms that are sympathetic to the environment in which we live and to the needs of our clients. They connect with the eye, mind and soul. Our firm of designers focus on the best energy efficient outcomes, producing beautiful, unique buildings. Contact us to discuss your project. You can find us at lifehousedesign.com.au. Lifehouse Design, creating smaller footprints, award-winning passive solar design and a proud supporter of Main FM. Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and District, including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the State Government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. There we heard Total Control by The Motels, and that was a song selection by the author Ronnie Scott, who I was chatting to about his new novel, out now via Penguin, called The Adversary. Thrill Me is a short story collection released by Glimmer Press, edited by Lynn Washington. Here's a bit from the blurb. Brimming with anticipation, humour, desire and strangeness, these stories will quicken your senses and make your spine tingle. In Thrill Me, 31 award-winning and emerging Australian storytellers write to thrill and move you. Read on if you dare, these stories will leave an unshakable imprint on you. And uh, the people at Glimmer Press have very kindly let us read one of those short stories on the first Friday of the month. So here is Lights and Sirens by Rachel Mead. The yelp and wail of the siren packs the ambulance with sound. Joel swings out of the Savas Euros car park onto Unley Road. A horn blares. In her side mirror, Tash sees a prick in a BMW flash his lights, but Joel doesn't even dignify him with a glance. The traffic's still pretty heavy for this late at night, but it's the Friday of the Queen's birthday weekend. Tash thinks Cameron should be almost at the campsite by now, and the lure of a silent house, a stack of novels, and the couch to herself is a siren call pitched for her ears alone. Red light at Unley and Cross, and the cars are three deep, both lanes. The traffic hears the siren and stops, waiting to see what they'll do. Joel bumps over the median strip, and Tash steadies herself, grabbing the Jesus bar and checking the traffic on the left. Clear. Joel floors it through the intersection, swerving from the wrong side of the road back into the queue of taillights. There's a Hyundai, Hyundai creeping along in the outside lane with a driver who must be deaf and blind not to clock them roaring up behind them. He sticks to the right. Joel flashes the high beam. Move it, dick for brains! Still no joy. Tash leans over and flicks the siren mode so it gives a couple of sharp yips. It looks like the guy jumps high. So high, he cracks his head. She can only hope. It's been years since driving Priority 1 got Tash's adrenaline pumping. The thrill eroded so gradually that she only really notices it's gone when people ask about the job. Other than gunshot wounds, what it feels like to drive lights and sirens is usually the first thing they want to know. She thinks everyone must get so worn down by the monotony of the peak hour commute that the idea of ignoring speed limits and red lights gets them as excited as Sandra Bullock in speed. Hollywood has so much to answer for. 
She did four years of clinical study, and then, just before graduation, two weeks of driver training. For her, that proportion really sums it all up. It's always been about the work, not the flashy transport. But still, she thinks it's weird how quickly she got used to it. Desensitized to the rush. After the first year, driving priority one didn't even raise her heart rate. It just meant she had to put down her falafel. The next couple of lights are green, the cars are spread out so Joel makes easy work of weaving around the ones that don't or won't get out of the way. Once the ambulance nears the railway line it gets trickier, the traffic sluggish as the road narrows. He leans on the horn and flashes the lights. After the Springbank corner the road is quieter. It's the foothills, so while there's less traffic there's also less light. The road begins to snake up towards Bel Air and Joel has to slow for the tight bends. Tash checks the GPS. We should be coming up on it in about half a click, she says, reaching for a couple of pairs of gloves and safety glasses. Here we go. Joel nods at the windscreen as he slows the ambulance, pulling to a stop so the headlights shine on the scene in front of them. There's a car parked. Here we go. Joel nods at the windscreen as he slows the ambulance, pulling to a stop so the headlights shine on the scene in front of them. There's a car pulled over awkwardly on the left and a motorbike on its side at the downhill edge on the road, one wheel lodged under the armco. Two young men run towards them, arms semaphoring wildly. Not the best body language to see at a motorcycle accident. A figure is lying on the road, hard up against the curb. A third young guy is kneeling beside the prone figure, and in the glare of the headlights the young guy's eyes are wide and bright, and he's pumping awkwardly on the figure's leather-clad chest in a jerky attempt at CPR. His rhythm's bad, the compressions are way too shallow, and he's not stopping to breathe into the motorcyclist's airway. A damaged motorcycle helmet lies on the road, a couple of metres away, pale scrape marks on its black finish looking like badly drawn speed stripes. Tash and Joel leap from the ambulance and grab their kits. The motorcyclist and the young guy are shaded from the streetlights by enormous pine trees, so the scene is lit only by the ambulance's headlights. The figures cast long black shadows that stripe the road like staves on sheet music. Joel heads for the two bystanders, deftly turning their backs to the scene while Tash makes a beeline for the motorcyclist and his inept resuscitator. She kneels beside the prone figure and immediately regrets it. Her knees have landed in a pool of vomit. The motorcyclist is unconscious, but his mouth is open, gulping like a goldfish out of water. There's blood from a deep graze across his cheek and brow and one of the shoulders looks low and distinctly dislocated. Tash knows she needs to check the rest of him, since he's probably sustained multiple limb fractures, but files that on a mental to-do list for once she's got the, the guy stabilised. Right now, he's got more serious issues. He's trying to breathe, he can't breathe, the young guy's voice cracks with stress. Don't worry, we've got this, I'm Tash and that's Joel, what's your name? Sorry, I, I couldn't help it. He looks down at the vomit, the poor guy can't be more than twenty. He's crying, tears shining on thick eyelashes. For a microsecond, Tash is distracted by the fact the kid is drop-dead gorgeous, huge dark eyes, olive skin, and a bone structure like he's just stepped out of an ad for Dolce and Gabbana. He looks familiar, but she can't place him. Don't worry, happens all the time. 
Tash shifts her knees, but the dampness is already seeping through her uniform. Great. What's your name? Mazar. His voice is shaky and probably a little higher than usual. Mazar, you're doing really well. I'm just going to check him over, so I need you to keep going with the compressions, just for a minute. You know the song Staying Alive, the Bee Gees? That's the rhythm we need. Tash puts a hand over his and starts to sing in a terrible attempt at a Barry Gibb falsetto, pumping firmly on the rider's sternum to the beat. Ah, 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 staying alive, staying alive. He picks up the rhythm with the compressions and starts to sing, his voice soft, deep, and perfectly pitched to harmonize with hers. Great, Mazar, beautiful voice. This is far from good. There's no rise and fall of the chest, and Tash's... Tash has seen this weird goldfish gulping before. The guy's not actually gasping for breath. It's an instinctual reaction, the last-ditch effort of the brainstem to keep firing. It means critical brain injury. She can only see half of the rider's face in the glare of the ambulance's headlights, the rest deep in shadow. But there's a growing pull of blood darkening the bitumen around his head in an opaque halo. There must be a serious skull fracture back there. He's dead, but the gulping reflex is making it seem to the onlookers like he's still in with a chance. Tash eases back his eyelids and flicks the beam from her penlight over them, just as she expected, fixed and dilated. Joel comes over, the two young men trailing a few paces behind. Their faces are in shadow, but Tash can tell they're only just holding it together. They stand close to each other, shoulders brushing, and it strikes her that all of them look sim- similar. Not like they're related, but all three look Lebanese or maybe Turkish, and they are all equally stunning. Again, she has that nagging feeling she's seen them before. She squints up at them, but when the answer doesn't immediately present itself, she pushes it out of her mind. Joel moves back around to stand behind Mazar as he fills Tash in. They were driving up the hill when this guy came streaming around the bend and lost it. He skidded, bounced off the stoby pole, helmet flew off, then he hit the curb. Hard. Cops are on the way. Just as he says this, the whine of a distant siren reaches them. As relief at the sound of backup floods through her, Tash reaches a decision. She'll keep up the pantomime of CPR until the cops arrive. That way, these boys will be saved the trauma of thinking the guy died while they were trying to help. Okay, Mazar, Joel can take over now. You've been brilliant. Mazar doesn't hesitate. He scrambles aside as Joel eases in beside him, then moves towards his two friends, not able to take his eyes off the still form of the rider. They hug him, and Tash can hear them murmuring, Mazar saying, yeah, yeah, in the pauses. She locks eyes with Joel over the rider's chest as as he keeps the compressions going. He's gone. She says in a voice pitched not to carry. But I'll ventilate until the cops get here. Then we'll pronounce, okay? He gets it. Yep, can't hurt. To tube the guy would be overdoing it, so she fishes the bag and masks out of the kit and cradles his head so she can hold the mask to his face with a good seal. The back of the skull feels misshapen and pulpy. Positioning the mask over his nose and mouth, she starts ventilations, squeezing the bag and forcing the air down the tube and into the mask. There's a wet pop, a sudden release of pressure. Tash feels a wet spurt across her chest and cheek. A spatter of blood and brain tissue hits her safety glasses. If, 
Joel looks at her wide-eyed, then down at the rider. The back and side of the motorcyclist's head has blown out the fracture, the air from the bag finding the path of least resistance through the crushed skull rather than down the stairway, which is lightly blocked. She stares down at the body, her hands falling away from the bag. Light pulses at her in stunning blasts, the bright glare of headlights and strobing of red and blue from the police beacons. She turns to face the light. The blood on her glasses makes black spots on her vision. She takes them off. There's a sound of retching. Mazar is doubled over, heaving. One of his friends rubs his back, his eyes horrified, as he stares first at the body, then at Tash. He turns away and vomits, his stomach emptying in a thin, clear stream onto the bitumen. She stands up, her knees coming free of the cold pool of blood and vomit with a small wet sound. Her shirt and trousers feel heavy, and they start to stick to her chest and thighs where blood is seeping into the fabric. Joel puts his hand on her shoulder. She can feel the warmth of it as it squeezes gently, guiding her to the side of the road. You okay? She nods. Stay here. I'll talk to the cops. Just breathe. Look at the city lights. I'll be right back. Oh God, oh God. Behind her, one of the boys is moaning, but it sounds quite far away. Something wet and heavy slides down her cheek. The lights spread out across the plain are beautiful, prickling the dark like goose flesh. They twinkle. Joel explained it to her once. Warm Warm air trapped under a layer of cold or something. She can't remember exactly. Here. Joel's voice makes her jump. He wraps a hospital blanket around her. Probably shouldn't freak the kids out any more than they already are. Tash looks at him quizzically, and he gestures to her uniform. Dark blood and globs of pale brain tissue splatter the bright green. She holds the edges of the blanket together at the base of her throat and turns back to the scene. One of the two cops now in the scene has laid a stretcher sheet over the dead motorcyclist. Motorcyclist. The three young guys are clustered around the other cop, a female officer who is holding her notebook in one hand and her phone in the other. She looks up at them almost shyly, smiling and juggling her full hands so she can tuck stray hair behind her ear. Joel leads Tash through the scene, past the police car, to the ambulance, sitting her down on the back bumper. Here. He holds out a baby wipe. Your face. Tash scrubs at her cheeks and forehead, and the damp tissue comes away smeared with dark pink and small gobs of jelly-like matter. Good thing you don't have a beard. Joel gives her shoulder another squeeze. She stands up, her knees cracking, and stares over his shoulder at the city lights for a long minute. The suburbs below trace a glimmering map, the air between her and the city as deep and quiet as the sea. Cops look like they've already got here, so we can probably clear the scene. You ready? She nods, trying to remember if she's got a clean uniform in her locker back at the station, thinking she should check that the boys are okay before they leave. She looks around the corner of the ambulance. They are sandwiched between the side of the ambulance and the female police officer. The cop seems to be well inside their personal space, her questions animated with hand-waving and a cheerier disposition than is usual at a fatality. The three young men are pale to the point of green, with the wide, glassy stare of shock, none of them able to take their eyes off the shrouded shape lying in the gutter. The breathless voice of the cop is another level of invasion, but they can't back away any further. Joel raises his eyebrows at Tash, but she's frowning, unable to take her eyes off this awkward trio of faces. In a flash of insight, she places them. Music videos. They're a band. 
She's seen their clips on high rotation on Rage. The cop steps forward, squeezing the arm of the young guy closest to her in a way that Tash senses is meant to be consoling, but misses the mark. My daughter's a huge fan. You, you ought to see her room. It's wallpapered with your posters, totally covered. She'll die when she hears I got to meet you. Seriously, she'll just die. The boys shuffle and shift their stares from the body of the motorcyclist to their own feet. Uh, sure, says the one in the middle. Thanks. Tash turns to Joe. Can we go? Tash opens the passenger door, and as she climbs into the ambulance, in the side mirror she sees the officer flip her mobile open. Joel takes the downhill curves of Bel Air Road at a gentle pace, and Tash slumps in the seat, shrugging deeper into the blanket. She stares ahead, ignoring the glittering cosmos of suburban lights stretched beyond the passenger window like a galaxy fallen to earth. Joel drums his fingers on the wheel, then breaks the silence. You know that old chestnut about Adelaide and Los Angeles being the only cities in the world where the lights twinkle? That's actually a load of crap. The twinkling is just from looking at lights through an updraft convection current. So any city lights will twinkle if you look down on them from a hill after a warm day. It's just that the topography and climate and in LA are similar, and in both places... People like heading for the hills to look at the lights, so they notice the twinkling. Myth busted. Sad, but true. Tash lets the silence between them stretch. The background static radio receiver and tires on bitumen amplifying inside the cabin until it occurs to her that this white noise in her ears has always been there. It could even be the sound of the universe spinning. But until this exact moment, she's been deaf to it. She straightens in her seat. Tonight's the first time I've got blood on my uniform. Joel looks at her, but she keeps her eyes fixed on the sinuous white lines slashing the road in front of them. They sit in separate silences as the bright tunnel beneath the streetlights guides them all the way back to the station. The end. And that was the short story, Lights and Sirens, written by Rachel Mead, and it appears in the short story collection, Thrill Me, edited by Lynette Washington, and out now and available and to buy and to order from all good bookshops. No agenda. Music, interviews, mostly music. Saturdays, noon until 2pm on 94.9 Main FM. Make it your soundtrack for Saturday. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM. And that's all we have time for this week. A big thank you to my guest, Ronnie Scott, speaking to us about his debut novel, The Adversary, out now via Penguin. And also thanks to Glimmer Press and to the writer Rachel Mead for allowing me to read her short story, Lights and Sirens, which is available on the collection Thrill Me, out now via Glimmer Press. 
Next week, we'll be delving into the archives of the Wheeler Center and replaying an interview that they did with Neil Gaiman. It's also time for the TQC Book Club, and I'll be chatting to Panic's frontman and solo artist Jay Laffer about one of his favorite novels and one of mine, Post Office by Charles Bukowski. The Quiet Carriage is on Main FM on Fridays at 1 p.m. It's also available to stream on mainfm.net and you can hear all old episodes on Spotify and all good podcast platforms. Until next week, keep reading. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. Moving can be stressful, but at Stressless Moves, we move your belongings like they're our own and can professionally pack and unpack your cartons. Stressless Moves offers door-to-door service locally or interstate. We do a weekly run to Melbourne with single items or a whole truckload. Leave the stress of moving to us. Call Jessica or Donna on 0427 046 001 for an obligation-free quote on your next move. Stresslessmoves.com.au, a proud sponsor of Main FM. Castlemaine Community House is working with many groups across the Shire to address well-being, mental health and the increased risk of family violence during these challenging times. We are working to deliver courses and workshops remotely and would love to hear from you about other programs or support we can offer. Visit cch.org.au or call 5472 4842 for information or to share ideas. Stay connected with Castlemaine Community House, Main FM sponsor.